Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Good evening. We begin with what sounds like a very public declaration of independence from Attorney General William Barr, along with questions about his motivations and how much credence to give his statements, because there's new reporting casting doubt on what Mr. Barr is saying, which hit almost the exact same time that he was actually saying it. First, here's what the Attorney General told ABC News' Pierre Thomas about being his own man and making his own calls. I will make those decisions based on what I think is the right thing to do, and I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody. And I said at the time, whether it's Congress, newspaper, editorial boards, or the president, I'm going to do what I think is right. Well, he also took issue with the president tweeting about Justice Department cases, which the president continued to do again today, concerning his friend and convicted felon, Roger Stone. He appeared to suggest that any connection between the president's tweeting and his own decisions, well, that would be just a coincidence. You know, the the fact that the tweets are out there and correspond to things we're doing at the department uh, sort of give grist to the mill. And that's why I think it's time to stop the tweeting about Department of Justice criminal cases. He says it makes it impossible to do his job, which, of course, raises the question, what job and for whom? Is he really staking out his independence here or merely begging the president not to say the quiet part out loud? Or is this just a public relations attempt to appear independent after a number of actions which have certainly put into question Barr's handling of the role? We'll talk more in a bit about the veracity of his claim that he's not, as critics accuse, acting more as the president's personal attorney than the country's attorney general. There's also new reporting in The New York Times, which is raising serious questions about the work the attorney general is doing behind the scenes, investigating what the president calls the Russia hoax. It's also, we should mention, what the U.S. intelligence community, including some of the president's own hand-picked top officials, call Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Quoting now from the lead in The New York Times, Trump administration officials investigating the government's response to Russia's election interference in 2016 appear to be hunting for a basis to accuse Obama-era intelligence officials of hiding evidence or manipulating analysis about Moscow's covert operation, according to people familiar with aspects of the inquiry which is precisely what the president wants to hear and has been talking, tweeting, and sometimes ranting about for months. And something that, again, stands in contrast to what Attorney General Barr said just today about, quote, not being influenced by anybody, unquote. The Times' Adam Goldman shares the byline on this uh, story. He joins us now. So, Adam, can you just walk us through your reporting? What more have you learned about the focus of this, uh, this investigation by the Department of Justice? Hey, thanks for having me. Well, John Durham, the prosecutor who Barr appointed to, to look at uh, the look at the origins of the FBI's Russia investigation and the uh, intelligence community's assessment of Russian interference is basically picking apart the analytical uh, analysis that went into this assessment that said Russia interfered in the election. Uh, and it's really, in, in many ways, uh, extraordinary. Uh, Durham is now investigating the people who sounded the alarm about Russian interference. And the whole investigation, I mean, according to your reporting, it's rattled current and former intelligence officials. What is their concern? What are they 
uh, assuming based on the questions that, that Durham and others have been asking? You know, it seems to be that he's picking apart analytical disputes that went on. Uh, disputes between the NSA and CIA about providing information that the CIA was supposed to give the NSA about a informant who had um, helped the CIA figure out Putin's intentions uh, and and a couple of other things. And, you know, he he's really, you know, we have not seen this before, that a criminal prosecutor is going to pick apart um, and analytical assessment uh, based on the work of three of three intelligence agencies, the NSA, the FBI and the CIA. And in the particular one of the particular cases that you write about is that the uh, the NSA wanted more information about the source of some information. The CIA had a source who was in the Kremlin at the time. CIA, as is often the case with all intelligence agencies, was concerned about revealing the identity to the NSA or spreading the information too widely. Eventually, according to your article, they did give more information to the NSA. And in the final draft, uh, the, uh, the the CIA and I think one other agency both said they had high confidence in the, the material, the information. And the NSA, they had an alternative, which is they had only moderate confidence. That's right, Anderson. So the agency had the CIA had a well-placed uh, agent slash informant within the Kremlin who was providing the CIA information about Putin's intentions. And so they were reluctant to provide information about that because they were fearful that the source information about the source would get made public, which, by the way, eventually it was. And he had to be resettled to the United States. Uh, but the CIA relented and gave the NSA that information. So what happened was the CIA had high confidence in their source. The FBI, FBI had high confidence in the CIA source. But the NSA, which devotes its life to signals intelligence, right? It wants to see or hear things, right? Doesn't rely on human intelligence, had moderate confidence. I think this, the NSA would have gotten to high if there had been a source who, who would have cooperated with the CIA source was, was, uh, was saying. But they didn't have that. So they stuck to, they stuck to this moderate this moderate confidence level. So Durham has been sort of examining this this divide, this disconnect between the CIA, the FBI, and the and the NSA. The um, Adam, if you could just stay with us, because I, I also want to bring in the former director of national intelligence and also retired Air Force Lieutenant General James Clapper. He's the author of Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Director Clapper is joining us by phone. Director Clapper, first of all, I'm wondering what your reaction to the reporting by Adam and others is tonight. Are you concerned about the apparent focus of this investigation or does it raise questions for you? Well, obviously, uh, yes. And uh, I and others, notably Marco Morell, former uh, acting director of CIA, have spoken about, about our concerns about a prosecuting attorney critiquing, critiquing the judgments of uh, intelligence analysts, uh, you know, after the fact, using what prosecuting attorneys, you know, the evidentiary bar they use, which is probable cause, as opposed to the evidentiary bar that intelligence analysts of necessity have to use to, to uh, uh, draw conclusions. I have to say that uh, once the team was put together, the three agencies, NSA, CIA, and FBI, and we had about 28 people to include um, a, a, a team of experts on Russia, from the three agencies, plus a few people from my office. Once uh, President Obama issued his tasking on about the 5th of December, 
and we formalized our task force, uh, one of my concerns was that there not be barriers or obstacles between and among the, the analysts who were assigned to this task because we had a very short deadline. And I was not presented with any evidence of any uh, problems with respect to access accesses to all the various compartments that w- were used to draw this conclusion. And I think the important thing here is rather than dwelling on how the sausage was made, is consider the product. And at no time was any dissent or disagreement identified to me uh, as we published their intelligence community assessment on the 6th of January of 2017. And I, I am not aware of any evidence of, uh, of anyone uh, holding back any uh, important information, nor was there any occasion where any of the agency directors applied or directed any windage to the, the experts who actually wrote the intelligence community assessment. Has Mr. Durham or anyone on his team reached out to you or interviewed you regarding the investigation? No. Uh, I expect I, they will at some point, but uh, I have not been contacted. Adam? Uh, let me weigh in here. Uh, since uh, General Clapper is accused to be part of the uh, you know, deep state conspiracy to overthrow the government and Trump. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that was echoed to me and that that General Clapper said, which I believe is correct, that the conclusions reached in this intelligence assessment about Russian interference, they weren't pushed down. They weren't pushed down by Brennan. They weren't pushed down by Comey. They weren't pushed down by General Rogers, who ran the NSA. These conclusions were reached by the analyst at the ground level. The 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 the, the handful of when you say anal- pushed down, you mean they didn't come from the top. They came from analysts. Right, right. These were career analysts, right? Some seniors, some mid-level who came to these conclusions on their own and presented them and presented them to 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 the leaders of these these particular organizations. Director Clapper, is that you see it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, I I didn't even meet with the, the the group of experts, the task force, until after the effort was over. After the intelligence community assessment had been published, it was the first time I met with them as a group. And I didn't issue any direction to them, nor other than we need to get this done uh, on, uh, under the timeline that uh, President Obama outlined uh, to us. So uh, that, that's absolutely true. One other point I'd like to make is I believe the NSA characterization on one of the key judgments of moderate was actually a draw, uh, one that was uh, came from Admiral Rogers, the director of NSA, personally. Uh, rather than perhaps his analyst, which is perfectly fine. Uh, uh, having been through pr- prior uh, occasions of groupthink, it's perfectly uh, acceptable and not unusual that you might have a differentiation and a confidence level on one key judgment. And, and let me weigh in here on the, the analytical conclusions they reach. You know, Barr has spent a lot of, I mean, excuse me, Durham uh, has spent a lot of time trying to understand the data sets that these agencies use to reach their conclusions. Uh, And, you know, he's asked about the analytical process. And it's my understanding that the response he's received is, well, you can read it yourself. You can read about the analytical standards because General Clapper's office in 2015 you know, issue, you can issue these analytic standards. There are actually guidelines that analysts have to follow to produce, 
to produce something like the intelligence assessment. And by the way, these these uh, these analytical uh, guidelines have to follow are the result of the Iraq war, of the result of relying on a a, a, a fraudulent informant named Curveball who drove this country to war. So, you know, the government realized after that, you know, we need to do a better job. And these things are written down and for anybody to see, they're public. Um, Adam, if, if I can comment, if yeah. I can comment on that, I, I was the only one in the intel, among the intelligence community seniors who were involved in the infamous National Intelligence Estimate of October 2002 dealing with weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That's why I was particularly sensitive about not suppressing dissent and to ensure if there was any that it was prominently displayed and there, and there wasn't any. So I was very mindful of sensitivity about uh, uh, sources and corroborating information because my fingerprints were on that NIE in a different intelligence capacity in 2002. And I remember that very well. I haven't. Let me make one point. I haven't spoken to General Clapper about this, but I've heard that independently, that people who are involved in this intelligence assessment, they they curveball weighed, curveball loomed. They were all aware of curveball. Mm. Uh, General Clapper and Adam, uh, just hold uh, hold tight. I also want to bring in Jeff Tubin because I think this also calls for a lawyer. This situation, CNN's chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin is here. Jeff, what do you make of this? Well, you have to remember the context here. Um, the president hates. Um, James, Mr. Brennan, who was the head of the CIA. I mean, he took away his security clearance. He's uh, Brennan is an analyst on MSNBC. He's been very critical of of President Trump. This Durham investigation is designed to get Brennan. They want to pin something on him. Durham, who's the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, used to have a very good reputation, but he's he, investigated law enforcement before. Correct. But when the inspector general's report about this came out a few months ago, he, even though his investigation isn't even over, you know, mouthed the Trump line of the inspector general's report is flawed. So, you know, the Durham investigation looks at this point like a hit job designed to get someone, probably Brennan, in the deep state, as the president calls it, not like a good faith investigation of what went but, on I mean, here. What's, so Durham has worked for both, uh, for, you know, for different administrations. He's worked under both parties uh, investigating wrongdoing in law enforcement and elsewhere. Why would he do this? I, I, you know, the being associated with Donald Trump is the great reputation killer of our lifetime. I mean, if you look at all the people who have, you know, whether it's, you know, members of his cabinet, whether his chiefs of staff, you know, G Mr. Tillerson was a very respected head of Exxon. Um, you know, General Mattis, right. General Flynn, General, uh, Kelly. General Flynn, General Kelly. I mean, all of them wind up degrading themselves by their association with or, the president. And also then being degraded by the president subsequent to degrading themselves. Uh, uh, Jeff, stick around. Uh, Adam Goldman, thank you. Fascinating reporting the New York Times tonight. James Clapper as well. Coming up next, we'll focus more specifically on the attorney general himself and how seriously to take his claims of independence at the Justice Department. And later, the president's attack on Mike Bloomberg. Bloomberg's answer to it, as well as the ability he seems to have, as some have put it, to live rent free inside the president's head. Top Bloomberg advisor also happens to have written a definitive book on citizen Trump joins us when we continue. 
So just as we're learning more about the investigation that critics say was hatched from a presidential conspiracy theory and is being conducted at the president's behest, the man in charge of it speaks out, Attorney General Barr, saying the president's tweets make it impossible for him to do his job. You have a problem with the tweets? Yes. Well, I have I have a problem uh, with some of some of the, the tweets. I'm happy to say that, in fact, the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. Uh, however, to have public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our, our men and women here, about cases pending in the department and about judges before whom we have cases, uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. Well, if that was supposed to be a shot across the bow of the White House, it seems to have landed with hardly a thud. A statement from Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham reads, the president wasn't bothered by the comments at all, and he has the right, just like any American citizen, to publicly offer his opinions. President Trump uses social media very effectively to fight for the American people against injustices in our country, including the fake news. The president has full faith and confidence in Attorney General Barr to do his job and uphold the law. Back now with Jeffrey Tubin, as well as two people of experience working in the White House, former Obama White House Communications Director Jen Psaki and CNN senior political analyst David Gergen. Um, Jeff, what do you think Barr... Why, why is Barr doing this today? Well, I think he's right that the, it does make his job impossible if, if the president continues behaving the way he's going to behave. The problem is the statement from the press secretary says he has the right to express his opinion like he's the host of The Apprentice. He's not the host of The Apprentice. He's the president of the United States and the attorney general's boss. So if, as that, as that statement suggests, he's going to continue doing this anyway, the problem has not been addressed at all, nor has the attorney general said why, out of all the sentences handed down in the United States, he decides to intervene on the one with involving the president's friend. David, I mean, just from a, an optics standpoint, do you think Attorney General Barr felt he had to speak out now in this way amid all the scrutiny and, you know, resignations and, and uh, you know, folks in the Justice Department trying to leave, uh, get off the case? He was certainly under pressure, Anderson, but given his record, given the way he, he was seen to be in the tank for the president right from the beginning of his uh, service at the Justice Department, it's hard not to be cynical tonight uh, about what was really going on here today. Uh, that it, look, it very much looks like he's come out with a statement that he can take back to the Justice Department and show them he stood up to the president, whereas, in fact, this was a set-up deal. It might have been a set-up deal in which there was an understanding with the president yeah, you can you can you can make that case so that uh, things go easier. But on the substance of what you do, you know, listen to me. Right. I, you know, I, it's hard not to believe that. And, and Jen, I mean, the White House is saying the president wasn't bothered by Barr, Barr's comments. Do you believe that this was, you know, Barr gone rogue or it doesn't seem that way? It sure doesn't feel that way, Anderson. And a lot of his um, supporters from the outside, people working on his campaign, donors have said something similar. Look, it's hard to believe, I think, that these prosecutors left because they were offended by one of the president's tweets. If that were the bar, people would have there would have been a mass exodus from government. It's not just that Attorney General Barr disagreed on the sentencing guidelines. He also replaced the lead prosecutor with a buddy of his. So there are a lot of actions that took place that I suspect are more concerning and led more to the actions by the prosecutors than presidential tweets. Jeff, does, um, 
what happens now in terms of the investigation? I mean, in terms, you have people trying to get off the case, getting off the case, and one case resigning. Well, there are a lot of assistant U.S. attorneys out there, and they'll find someone to do the case. The, the question is, like, who is deciding, and is the president still dictating, you know, individual sentences? Right. Barr or- has said that the president, you know, has never made a, a request to him about a criminal case. He doesn't really have to, though, if he's tweeting, tweeting. stuff out and making clear what he wants. Exactly. I mean, and- Barr is no fool. He got the job by submitting a, a uh, you know, uh, un, 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 uh, he wasn't even solicited. He just submitted his own ideas. Correct. And as long as the president injects himself into individual prosecutorial decisions, whether it's in a phone call or in tweets, that's a distortion of how the Justice Department has worked for decades. And we'll see if Barr is going to do anything about that. It's really, David, it's really interesting how time and time again, we hear these arguments. Well, the president never said to me directly, you know, quid pro quo. Yeah. The president never said directly. Exactly. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. You know, winks and nods will work. Almost anything will work. Bart knows what the president wants. It's been perfectly clear from the tweets and everything else. You know, I think we have to see what happens now. Does Stone get a much lighter sentence? Does General Flynn possibly get probation? Does President Trump wind up pardoning both of them? You know, all of these questions are... And does Durham come in with a blasting statement that looks suspicious on his face uh, about Brennan? All those things are going on. And I, and I have to say, I, I think that Bart needs to show much more than, than he did today. If he's really going to stand up against the president, I think he has to do it on substance, and I think he has to be very consistent about it. He can't just have this one, one-off one kind of statement saying to the Justice Department employees, hey, listen, I'm for, I'm for you, when it's, when it's not at all apparent he really is. Let, Let me add one, more, yeah. one variable to that. <clears throat> Judge Amy Berman Jackson is a wild card here. She doesn't answer to Donald Trump. She has life tenure. She's going to sentence Roger Stone. She would be well within her rights to say, I want to hold a hearing about what the hell happened here, because this is not the normal process for how sentencing is handled within the Justice Department. And maybe she will call in political appointees and explain how and why this sentence recommendation was changed so dramatically at the last minute after the president asked for it. Jen, you know, there are Republicans who've said, uh, you know, on on our air and elsewhere, well, look, uh, you know, every president wants an attorney general who's on his team. And they say, you know, Eric Holder was, uh, uh, you know, a close confidant of of President Obama. Robert Kennedy was obviously, you know, John F. Kennedy's uh, brother. Um, Sure. I mean, the president, any president picks the who their attorney general is. They nominate them. But at the same time, there are rules in place in any White House. I mean, whenever the attorney general was in the White House as a political appointee, as a, a close advisor of the president, I kind of avoided uh, any contact. You don't know when cases are going to be decided. You don't know when when information is going to come out, when when it or how it will come out. Um, you know, that is that is what is normal. And this is crossing some lines uh, that I think go far beyond beyond uh, having somebody you like as the attorney general when you're the president. Jen, do you think the president will actually stop tweeting about Justice Department cases? It seems highly unlikely, right? I mean, I I don't think, given he didn't take any offense to it, uh, and given he doesn't seem to have any self-control with Twitter, uh, I would bet we see some more tweets around his friends who are, uh, you know, about to be sentenced or facing uh, prosecution, I suspect. We, we don't have to guess. The press secretary yeah. said he's yeah, going to continue doing it. Right, I mean, so, so it's she not like it. there, you know, there's some mystery about whether mm-hmm. the president learned a lesson. He very explicitly, according to the, his press secretary, yeah 
did not. David That's Gergen, right. Jen Psaki, Jeff Tubin, thanks very much. Mike Thank Bloomberg you. took a dig at the president after Barr's interview was released. Here's what the Democratic presidential candidate tweeted about the attorney general saying presidential tweets make it hard for him to do his job. Quote, if it's any consolation, Trump's tweets make it impossible for him to do his job, too. Reaction next from one of Bloomberg's top advisors. It's no secret that President Trump and one of his Democratic rivals, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, are political foes. No secret either that the mayor has been getting under the president's skin a lot lately. Some new evidence today. At 8.23 this morning, the president started things off by tweeting, Mini Mike is a five-foot-four mass of dead energy who does not want to be on the debate stage with these professional politicians. No boxes, please. He hates crazy Bernie and will, and will with enough money, possibly stop him. Bernie's people will go nuts. Just 20 minutes later, Bloomberg posted this. We know many of the same people in New York. Behind your back, they laugh at you and call you a carnival barking clown. They know you inherited a fortune and squandered it with stupid deals and incompetence. I have the record and the resources to defeat you, and I will. Then Bloomberg offered this to reporters. Somebody said, uh, you know, that he's tall than me, calls me Little Mike. And the answer is, Donald, where I come from, we measure your height from your neck up. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is ahead of us, afraid of us, and that's why he keeps tweeting all the time. If he doesn't mention you, you got a big problem. Uh, but the president attacked me again this morning on Twitter. Thank you very much, Donald. Uh, he sees our poll numbers, and I think it's fair to say he is scared because he knows I have the record and the resources to defeat him. Well, joining us now is writer Tim O'Brien, a senior advisor to the Bloomberg presidential campaign. Before that, a Trump biographer. Uh, Tim, good to have you on the program. Thanks, Anderson. Um, it, it, to me, that, that response by Mayor Bloomberg was very, that tweet in particular was very interesting because the whole, I've been fascinated by President Trump's, they are laughing at us, uh, constant refrain. He said that about Obama all the time. Oh, co- other countries are laughing at us. That seems to be one of his greatest fears, yes. which is people are laughing at me, making fun of me. Um, and that Bloomberg went right after that, it seems like he kind of knows the buttons to push with President Trump. He knows how deeply insecure Donald Trump is. You know, Donald Trump is a classic bully. He uses Twitter to work these things out. It's almost like therapy for him. And it's a sideshow for us. I think Mike knows how Donald Trump operates because he's watched Donald Trump operate this way in New York for years. Mike is secure about who he is. Mike is everything Donald Trump aspires to be and isn't. And I think we've discovered that we can just bounce him around like a beach ball day to day, and it keeps him distracted. We'll stay focused on the stuff voters care about, health care, education, jobs, and how, keep Trump off balance. How much of the animosity you think the president has toward him and, and vice versa is about policy? How much is you know, just a dislike of, of each other. Well, I don't think I don't think Mike dislikes Trump. He knows that Trump's a con man. I just don't think he thinks about Trump that much. But I think Donald Trump is obsessed with Mike and he's obsessed with Mike because Mike stands on a stack of achievements that makes him 10 feet taller than Trump is, even if Trump wants to make fun of his height. Right. I mean, Mike, Mike Bloomberg does not come from a, a huge, you know, a huge fortune like Donald Trump does. No, Mike's and authentically self-made. You know, Mike, Mike worked as a parking lot attendant in college. Uh, to work through college. Every dollar he's made, he's earned. Donald Trump was born with a silver foot in his mouth, and he's never really forgotten it. His father, Trump's father, was self-made. And I think that hangs over Donald Trump's consciousness 
all the time. It's fascinating to me. I mean, you and I, I've done interviews with you because you were sued by Trump. Right. You deposed Trump. I mean, you actually have seen more of Trump's financial records and everything than anybody else. Well, and, you know, the thing about Donald Trump is he is the most successful con man of the modern era. He is conveyed to voters that he's a successful businessman when he's not. He's a serial bankruptcy artist. He's conveyed to voters that I'm going to serve your interests and bring back jobs to your broken communities. And he hasn't. And in Mike Bloomberg is someone who has actually done all these things for people. Well, it's also fast. I mean, the whole thing that Trump ran on of, you know, hire the best people. I mean, every one of the things that he has said, and it's just not true. And we have seen time and time again the kind of people, I mean, Rudy Giuliani is his personal attorney. I mean, that... I mean, he's never attracted A-list people because Donald Trump himself is not A-list. He's not intellectually disciplined. He's not emotionally disciplined. He can't add well. He is not a reader. Uh, and, and he tends to attract other people who are also carnival barkers. So wh- how is, what is the lane for Mike Bloomberg? Obviously, this is a situation nobody has ever seen before, given his resources, uh, given his you know, late entrance into the campaign. Um, what is the path ahead? He's going to be at the debates for the first time coming up in Vegas next week. Well, I think the path, I mean, there's clearly a lot of voters who feel at sea right now. I think that's why the Democratic field has been fragmented. And I think Mike is somebody who can unify most of these disparate branches of the party. He's a unifier, although we're willing to get into the trenches and bat Donald Trump around. We respect all of the other Democratic candidates. We are not making fun of them on Twitter or anywhere else. Mm. But we do feel that Mike has the most governing experience of anybody running. Uh, he's a pragmatic progressive who has deep appeal to independents, the business community, moderates, and on and on. He, he has been, you know, the, the, one of the criticisms of him is going to be on that debate stage that he's essentially bought his way into the election. Uh, he's outspending everybody. I talked to Bernie Sanders last night on the program, and, you know, he said, you know, uh, he's clearly going to be pointing out that Bloomberg not only is a billionaire, but has not spent months and months in Iowa and New Hampshire and done what everybody else has done. Well, so Mike has spent months and months on the campaign trail. Mike has spent decades and decades as a public servant and as a philanthropist. He's worked very hard to earn the reputation he has. Even before this, he's been giving huge amounts of money on gun issues in various states. At the 2018 midterm, he was one of the most generous backers of women running in that campaign who flipped formerly Republican districts. You can buy exposure. You can't buy an election. If you could buy exposure, Tom Steyer, uh, buy an election, Tom Steyer wouldn't still be at one or two percent. Mike Bloomberg is second in a lot of recent polls because people know his story now. The other thing is the amount of money he's spending. We have said that if Mike's not the nominee, this machine we're building, we're in over 45 states and territories. We've got about 2,100 people on the ground. That'll be put, put at the feet of the party or whoever the Democratic nominee is. But we think Mike is the best person to He's going to, to continue pouring money into this, even if he is not the nominee. Yes, it is, because he sees this as the culmination of his life's work. And, you know, if you look at the numbers right now, the DNC has about $8 million. The RNC and Trump combined have about 180, and we anticipate they'll put about another $900 million in dark money into this campaign. Had Mike Bloomberg not gotten into this campaign, the Democrats would have been severely outrun, both financially and organizationally. And he is doing what I think is a historic act to right this ship at a time when there's a five-alarm fire in the White House. You know, obviously, coming up for the debate stage, you, I'm sure you are prepared for this. There's obviously a lot of criticism about his policy that's on stop and frisk. Right. He says he inherited it, uh, you know, uh, but it did grow under him. And even, I think, 2018, he was still speaking favorably about it. 
The, the only thing we can say about stop and frisk is that it was a mistake. Mike was wrong to embrace it, wrong to embrace it for, and stand by it for as long as he did. I think he owes it to communities of color for the rest of his career to prove to them that this is not who he is as a man or as a politician. But stop and frisk also doesn't represent the totality of his time as mayor. He did a lot of substantial things to reach out and empower communities of color. He diversified the NYPD. The incarceration rate in New York dropped when he was mayor. He had a model program uh, for outreach to young uh, residents of color that Barack Obama modeled my brother's keeper on. And that's why we've got current and former mayors of color elected officials who still support this campaign. It's why Mike is still rising in the polls with black voters is because they understand the totality of his career. A lot of the people have left Biden in South Carolina or have gone to Indeed. Bloomberg. Indeed. Um, I appreciate you being with us. Thanks, Thanks Anderson. Uh, Tim O'Brien, just ahead, more on the, uh, the colorful history of President Trump and Mike Bloomberg. Had these two billionaires from New York who once were seen publicly together, golfing, ribbon cuttings, even on the president's former TV show that when we return. Think about your home for a moment. It's where life happens. It's where you build that tree house or try that new recipe. It's where you rest and recharge, work and play. You expect a lot out of it. And that's why HomeAdvisor is committed to keeping your home up and running, no matter what. They match you with the best pros in your area. Pros who can get your home projects done right. From unexpected jobs like appliance repairs, clogged gutters, and leaky faucets, to projects you actually look forward to, like creating your very own backyard summer retreat or getting that new pool installed. Whatever it is, they're here to help. And the HomeAdvisor app makes it easy. Use it to book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, if you're looking for some local inspiration, you can see trending tasks in your neighborhood. So whether you need a last-minute fix, routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, HomeAdvisor is here, ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app and get started today. Before Mike Bloomberg and Donald Trump had the White House in their sights, the two New Yorkers were actually quite complimentary of each other, at least publicly. Brian Todd has the story of why they're falling out predates either either's run for the presidency. Look, he's a lightweight. The way they talk about each other now, you'd think they've been enemies for life. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. But back in New York, back in the day, a different dynamic. And I have to say, you have been a great mayor. Come here. You really have. I mean, this guy is fantastic. That was in October 2013. Then New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Donald Trump lavished praise on each other after Trump helped Bloomberg convert a trash dump in the Bronx into a high-end golf course. But if there's anybody that has changed this city, it is Donald Trump. He really has done an amazing thing, and this is another part of it. Donald, thank you for your confidence in the city. Analysts say that partnership actually could have been the genesis of their falling out, because in a 2016 interview with Wolf Blitzer, Trump took all the credit for the project. I took it over, I got it knocked up in one year, and now it's a tremendous success. Michael asked me if I'd get involved in it. Bloomberg thought that was an exaggeration. His former aides thought that was an exaggeration, um, and it sort of split between them. But before then, Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg appeared to get along, or at least found each other useful. Trump backed Bloomberg's effort to run for a third term as New York's mayor. They golfed together. Bloomberg appeared on Trump's NBC show, The Apprentice. And their daughters appeared in an HBO documentary called Born Rich. But analysts say in the real world of New York business and philanthropy. In that world, it was Bloomberg who was the star and it was Trump who was the one who was always looking for acceptance and rarely getting it. 
During all of his life, Donald Trump has longed for the approval of the New York establishment. Mike Bloomberg was the New York establishment. Now, the two are being compared and contrasted under a microscope. Both switched political parties repeatedly and were unexpected winners in their biggest elections. And both became billionaires, although on the Forbes list of the wealthiest Americans at the end of last year, Michael Bloomberg ranked eighth with $53.4 billion, while Trump ranked 275th with $3.1 billion. They both named their businesses after themselves. They're both very wealthy people. But Bloomberg came from a more working class background. And Donald Trump, of course, inherited a lot of money uh, from his father to run, run his business. Going forward, how nasty and personal will their battle become? Well, I think in a head-to-head -head battle, Mike Bloomberg and Donald Trump will be nastier than anything we've seen in politics, perhaps in 100 years. You know, these, these are two people who are not afraid to fight. And they're not afraid to fight in a very personal way. Analysts say one reason Donald Trump fears Michael Bloomberg is that he realizes that Bloomberg has the resources, millions of dollars, that Bloomberg can spend on ads, highly produced ads that he can use to keep attacking Trump in the most personal of ways. Brian Todd, CNN, Washington. Just ahead, we'll return to the breaking news and talk with a lawmaker about what he'll ask Attorney General Barr when Barr testifies before Congress. Let's check with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Prime Time. Chris? What's this? What's this, Anderson? It seems that the president got popped in the mouth three times in one day. The AG <laughs> basically telling him to shut up with the tweets. The Republicans in the Senate voting in favor of limiting his military power with Iran. And then he punched himself in the face, changing his story about Rudy being sent to Ukraine by him. So we have a house manager here. Uh, we have a representative uh, for Bloomberg here, who is Congressman Gregory Meeks. We'll take it all on with two ace investigators as well. All right, about eight minutes from now. Chris, look forward to that. I'll see you then. Coming up next, Congressman Eric Swalwell on the breaking news. What he wants to know about Attorney General Barr's claim of independence from the White House. Returning to the breaking news, Attorney General Barr's de declaration, as it were, of independence from outside interference. He's set to testify before the House Judiciary Committee late next month. Those interview remarks we played for you earlier are bound to come up one way or another. Joining me now, a key member of that committee, California Democrat Eric Swalwell. He's the author of the upcoming book, Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump. Um, so, Congressman, when, when the Attorney General says the president never has asked him to do anything regarding a specific case... Do you buy that or does the president even need to call him up when he's tweeting? I'll just say that I don't think the president needs to. We, we learned from Michael Cohen that there's kind of a code that the president has where, you know, he'll intimate something or say, you know, it would be really nice or it's so unfair what's happening to Roger Stone. And then he's tweeting. And so Barr gets the message. What's, what's so frustrating here is that the president could just pardon Roger Stone, but instead he's chosen to show all of us that he's got others who will do his hits for him and he's injected this virus of corruption into the Department you of Justice. You think that's now. intentional? I, I mean, think it's intentional. Yeah, I think he wants to show that uh, he can actually have the DOJ uh, do his work. Because no matter what happens, I think Stone's ultimately going to get pardoned. Right. I mean, if he was so concerned, he could just pardon him right away. Right. Right. This is more about, I think, showing his that's power. That's interesting. Should, I mean, the, the idea that Barr is, is saying, you know, the president's tweets make my job impossible... Um, it doesn't seem like I mean, do, do you believe that he this is really him pushing back? Because traditionally, if that happens, 
the, you know, the president would slam him or the White House would. In this case, the White House said, oh, you know, he's uh, he's free to have his own opinions. Yeah, I don't buy it. And also, I mean, tell me the time where Bill Barr, you know, went to a court and said, you know what, that young black man who is being over prosecuted for having cocaine on him disproportionately to white persons, we're going to lower the recommendation on that. That's not happening. I mean, this is only happening for the president's friend. It's not the first time. They also have changed the recommendation for former national security advisor Michael Flynn. There, there for a quite for a long time, there have been prosecutions, over, overly zealous prosecutions of people for all manner of uh, very serious crimes, uh, uh, or, or even uh, for, for not serious crimes, and he hasn't intervened on them. No, he hasn't. And, and again, it's because he's helping the president's friends. And what's most concerning is that he's not only asking, the president's not only suggesting that a friend should have their sentence reduced, he's also, I think, showing that if you're an enemy of mine, I now have weaponized the Department of Justice, and mm-hmm. we could go after you. And then not just, you know, help our friends, but you know, punish and maybe prison our enemies. Uh, Barr is going to be appearing, obviously, before your, the Judiciary Committee, which you're, which you're on. What do you want to to hear from him? Do you expect much to actually come of that? Independence of prosecutors is a pillar of our democracy, and I think we want to know if that pillar uh, still stands. But he's going to, I mean, will he, will he say it doesn't? I mean, he's going to say it does, of course. So we're launching an investigation immediately in, into this case and in, in looking also at others. So, you know, I, I think we're going to see what we can find. We're not helpless anymore. You know, we won the majority. We have subpoena power. Uh, and also we have these brave prosecutors uh, who have resigned. And, you know, if, there, if you're a prosecutor out there right now and you are fearful that the Department of Justice is being weaponized, I would hope that more people would come forward. That would assist us. Congressman Eric Swalwell, appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very Thanks. much. Uh, the news continues. I want to hand over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris.